Welcome to His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. Our passion at His Life Ministries is to help believers know Him and show Him. So we keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make His truth plain to you so you can walk in freedom and enjoy the life of union that God has designed for you to live. And now, here's Pastor Todd. Uh, I'm going to start by giving you an introduction and some context for the letter. A lot of this is going to be uh, just history and information, but God can use even that. And it's important for us to to know this as we go in and look at the context, as we look at what Paul is writing. We need to know who he's writing to. What is the society that he's writing to, like we did with Corinthians, if you'll recall. What is the attitude of the people, the disposition, the personality of the people he is writing to? Who are these people? The Galatians. What are they? Well, some things you probably didn't know about the letter to the Galatians. It's believed to have been written very early in Paul's ministry, sometime between 48 and 49 AD. It is most likely the first Paulian letter. It's the very first Paulian epistle. And it reflects his zeal and passion for the purity of the message that God had given him to preach. I mean, you can hear that fervor in what he writes and how he is so bold in what he writes concerning it. This letter was written to the churches of Galatia. I know for many years I thought it was the church of Galatia. But no, this is the churches of Galatia. The name Galatia is derived from the barbaric Gauls or Celts. The Celts. It's about the Celts were, or the Gauls were, they were a Celtic people. They were extremely hostile and warlike. Okay? And they came out of Europe and they spent several centuries raiding and plundering the Greek and Roman territories. They were a major pest and hard to overcome. They were a migrating group of warring Gaelic tribes who moved west in conquest. In 280 BC, they established a Gaelic nation in Asia Minor. And then in 180 BC, they were finally conquered by the Romans. Then in 26 BC, they became the Roman province of Galatia. Okay? When Galatia was reorganized by the Romans, it became much larger, more ethnically diverse. And where this is, is this is a mountainous region. It is actually where Turkey is located today, the nation of Turkey is. It was populated primarily by Gentiles that were descendants of the ancient Celtic tribes. They had little or no acquaintance with Judaism. By the time this letter was written, some of the Jewish people had moved into the territory. And the Galatians were known, their personalities, they were known to be capricious and quick-tempered. Not like us at all. Okay? It is believed that Paul established these churches during his first missionary journey, and probably they were established along the southern part of Galatia, all those cities laid on a trade route, kind of like IH-10. They were all in line over there. And that's where he believed, they believe Paul started it. 
Paul visited Galatia on three occasions. His first missionary journey is where, what we're going to be talking about. That's when this letter was written. And you'll find that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. His second missionary journey recorded in Acts 16, and his third missionary journey recorded in Acts 18. Now, Paul's journeys into Galatia have been described as a journey both of blessing and beatings. Paul and Barnabas established the churches in four cities. They were in southern Galatia. There were the cities of Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe. The history of the first missionary journey and the establishment of these churches can be found, as I said, in Acts 13 and 14. Now, early on, the ministry of Paul was under constant and unrelenting attack. And one of the most vigilant and violent of Paul's attackers were the Judaizers. And they followed him from Antioch to Iconium and then to Lystra. And in fact, it was in Lystra that they incited a mob of Jews... And they drug him out of the city and stoned him, gathered, you know, left him for dead, and the disciples gathered around him. And this is what's so amazing to me. Gathered around him, they're kind of looking at him, I guess. I doubt anybody knew CPR. And they're getting, looking down at Paul, and he's this bloody heat. And Paul jumps up. I bet that got somebody's heart started. And he got up, and guess what he does? He runs! No, that's what I would do. He turns around and walks right back into the city. Now, you think, Paul, they really must have rattled you. Do you really want to go back in where those people are that just caved your head with a rock? But he did. One of the commentators I read, he wrote, this is a look at 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18 said, There is no fear in love. Dread does not exist, but perfect, complete, full-grown love drives out fear. Because fear involves the expectation of divine punishment. So the one who is afraid of God's judgment is not perfected in love, has not grown into a sufficient understanding of God's love. He was compelled by the love of God. There's no self-preservation in it. It's not even a thought. I don't know how you could have much of a thought after being stoned, but that's what he did. Turned around and walked in and began to minister once again. I thought, you know, you often look at the lives of people like Paul and you read the stories of how he continually went forward, continually went into the temple and preached the word of God. And you think... There's got to be a disconnect because who would walk into that kind of threat, into that kind of danger? And then that verse, the love of God compels. Now listen, how does that affect me? You know, my biggest concern is the gas lines down at the Valero, right? I don't think it's the love of God compelling me to go get in the gas line. It's probably the gauge. But here's the thing. Everything that I face, everything I go into... I go into attended by the love, the tenacious, unmovable love of God. There's no place for fear in my life. 
I mean, I look at the things that come against my family. I look at things that come against my children, my nation. I look at the things that are constantly presenting themselves as threats and, and possibilities. And I say, wow, that's scary. Wow, that, this could happen and that could happen. And it's almost like God says, but I'm here and I'm sovereign and I am love. Well, that was the rule. Paul's life. See, Paul had been religious. Pharisee of Pharisees. He had served God without love. He had served God in the passion of the law. He'd served God in a sense of self-righteousness. And it left him fearful. And it left him anxious. And it left him zealous, constantly trying to achieve something that would plateau out into a place of confidence and safety. And it never did. And he pushed all the harder and pushed all the harder and pushed all the harder and never arrived until that day he saw Jesus in Damascus. And you know what? Jesus said, I'm going to show you what you're going to suffer for my namesake. And Paul didn't say, well, now let's talk about that. He had a look at Jesus the mention of suffering did not faze him at all. It's like a man standing in the middle of a rushing clear mountain stream. And somebody comes along and says, you know, one day you may die of thirst. He didn't care. An unending stream of God's love was washing over Paul. Paul was driven by the love of God. There was no fear of what man may do. Now, this letter is not a warm and fuzzy letter. It is a letter of reproof. It is Paul's most explosive letter written in his own hand. It has been called the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty. Some have written that Galatians was a rough draft for Romans. Roman tells us what the gospel is, and Galatians tells us what the gospel is not. And Luther considered this epistle the hallmark of the teaching of the Reformation. The epistle to the Galatian articulates our complete deliverance from the law. Now you've heard that. When we talk about our deliverance from the law, it is very important that we understand what we're talking about. Okay? Because a lot of people decide they know what law is. And law is anything they don't want to do. Right? You tell them, do not forsake the assembly, well, that's law. You tell them, you need to spend time in the Word of God to renew your mind, well, that's law. You tell them that they need to love one another, well, that's true, but don't make it a law. <laughs> it's that kind of knee-jerk reaction to anything that would impose itself, and that you can tell a person who is living their Christian life according to the flesh because they're all about the law being dead and the liberty of the flesh. They're all about it. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the law, what law Paul is talking about. Paul is dealing with our relationship with the law. He actually uses that word about 32 times in six chapters. So there are two parts to the law. Two parts, okay? First, there is the moral law. And that's what you have in the Ten Commandments, right? That's what we, we see when the Ten Commandments represents God's standard. 
Now, it is a standard that none can meet apart from Christ. Therefore, it condemns all who seek to live to it. And Paul actually called it the ministry of death in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. Because of sin, because of the DNA of sin, which we were born with, the corruption of sin in our DNA, the Ten Commandments... We couldn't live to the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments were a condemnation. Even if we could live to it externally, we couldn't live to it internally. And that's what Jesus pointed out when he came in the Gospels. Constantly, if you so much as look at a woman, you've, you've committed adultery. And he's talking about the heart. Because the heart did not change. The Ten Commandments never changed the heart of man, okay? This is the written standard... Jesus is the standard. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, he writes, You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human heart. God never abolished the standard. Okay? We talk about abolishing the law. God never abolished the standard, okay? He fulfilled it with Christ, who has written the standard in our hearts. That's what he did. So when we look at we look at that the Mosaic law, when we look at the character, we're looking at the character of God. We're looking at the standard of Christ. And it is only fulfilled in him. This is a standard we're called to live from, not to. Do you hear me? This is a standard we are to live from, not to. What does that mean? From the inside out. Not to as a standard that is external, trying to create ourselves in that image. Does that make a difference to you? We're called to live from, not to. All right? Two would mean there's something we have to do to create the standard. The standard has not been abolished. Okay, then we have the ceremonial law. All right? The ceremonial law, these are all the rules and regulations that govern the behavior of the Jews. Circumcision being part of that. It told them what to wear, what to eat, and when. What to drink, and when. What to wear, and when. It covered ceremonies, holidays, sacrifices... And God used that law to preserve and protect the nation of Israel. Now, these laws set the people apart externally and kept them distinct among the nations. Yet Christ has set us apart internally, and it is manifest in how we live. So the law, that ceremonial law, was an external application to the people of Israel. It was as though it were an external fence that hemmed them in. It made them distinct as a people, and God put it there as a tutor. We're going to see that a little bit later on. As a babysitter, really is what that's called. He put it there as a babysitter to protect and guard them and to make them live. Now, this is important to note. To make them live in their distinctiveness. It became a way of life for them. Everything that they touched, everything that they did reaffirmed their distinction. What they ate, 
how it was prepared, what they ate it on, when they ate it, their prayers, their worship, all of these things were distinctives that God put in place with the law, the ceremonial law. It put them in a position where every day, in everything that they did, there was a renewal, an affirmation of their distinction. Now then God made a change. When God fulfilled the law through Jesus Christ, it was no longer externally kept, but internally kept and to be affirmed by faith in the life of believers. Now this is where we really fall down. Because we believe that because God removed the external distinctions of Israel as a ceremonial law, that we should not have to live by faith in the distinction of who we are in Christ. But that's what we're called to do. We're called to live by determined faith in the distinction of who we are in Christ. That doesn't mean y'all need to give up bacon. Because, you know, I'd have a real problem with that. But it does mean that you live like who you are. You live in the truth of who you are. You renew your mind with the truth of who you are. You make your home distinctive. You make your workplace distinctive. You make your relationships distinctive. You make everything about the context of your relationship with your God. That's what we call living by faith. It is walking according to the Spirit. Because now you're distinct where? In the Spirit. Okay? Now, Christ has now set us apart internally, and it is manifest in how we live. Now, Paul illustrates this through the, through the ceremonial law of circumcision. Circumcision is mentioned six times in the book of Galatians. Circumcision is the physical mark that identified Jews physically with Abraham. The mark of distinction for the Christian is an internal mark that identifies us with Christ. Romans 2.29 says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and true circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the fulfillment of the letter of the law, his praise is not from men, but from God. We are distinct in who we are created to be, what was detestable by God, what was a corruption to our very existence, was cut away. And now we live in the fullness of his favor. It is distinctly true of us. It is not changeable. It is as eternal as our God. Okay? So what Paul is illustrating is now that the law, the ceremonial law, has no longer a relevance in keeping us, then circumcision is also illustrated in what Christ did for us internally. How he created us in his image and cut away, removed from us the very old man of sin, the power of sin, lost its control when that, was, when that happened. Galatians 6.15 says... For neither is circumcision anything of any importance, nor uncircumcision. For only a new creation, 
which is the result of a new birth, a spiritual transformation, a new nature in Christ. That's the only thing that counts. Okay? Now, the Christian that wants to live in carnality, that wants to live to the flesh, will punish himself. Sin will punish him. Because he lives to the same frailties, the same weaknesses, the same fears, the same anxieties, the same things that the world lives to, he lives to. And it is not a blessing, it is not a liberty, it is a curse. It is a curse to him. Now, in the same way that Paul could encounter Christ on the Damascus road and recognize that he was now in Christ. He was now part of who Christ was. That Christ was in him and he no longer needed to live to the flesh. Galatians 2.20 He saw what a huge contrast there was between living according to the flesh because he had really given himself over to living according to the flesh in a religious way. He had completely devoted himself. He had given everything to it. He knew the difference and now God has literally taken him out and he, he recreated him in Christ and he sees who he has as life at the center and there's no going back. There's no glory in the flesh. None. Paul is not even tempted. There is no... This is why when we went through Corinthians he said over and over again he said, I don't want to boast. I'm not going to boast. I am who I am by Christ. Because he had seen Christ with clarity. He had seen the resurrected Christ. He was not tempted to adorn his flesh and sell it to other men as righteous. He had already been down that road. Well, the distinction of us that will never change, the circumcision that we have is that we are new creations. We are of the new birth. And as we will read over and over again, we have been set free from the old law to live from the law of liberty. That law of liberty that allows us to live. Now get this. This is the purpose of this liberty. That allows us, it allows us to live a spiritually uninhibited life. Spiritually uninhibited life. A freedom that empowers us to pursue every obedience with joy. And to live in the fullness of Christ's blessing. Maturing in truth by the practice of living according to the Spirit. That's what living to the law of liberty is. It's not me deciding whether or not I want to do this or I want to do that or I have freedom to go here and I have freedom to go. That is a very carnal view. What it is, is it's saying, I have a clear path to embrace and enjoy all that Christ has put before me. I have the freedom to know that I am in His favor, that He is in love with me. I have the truth that I am inhabited by His life. I have the reality that nothing will touch my life apart from Him. I have the, the unbelievable confidence of His love that allows me to embrace life with freedom. That's what what I have. That is the liberty that I have. The law of liberty allows me to live in that. I don't have to live 
in, in this duality that carnality presents. Well, I have freedom to play over here in the world, but, you know, Jesus has forgiven me, so, you know, I get to feeling bad because it doesn't suit me, so I'll just get back over here and live over here for a while. But, you know, that looks pretty good over there. I'll come over here and live over here. Back and forth and back and forth. Have you ever lived that life? I have. That's no life to live. I have been given life. And you hear this over and over, Paul saying, Listen, Jesus said, I've given you life that you might live abundantly. Not that you can live in self-imposed bondage. We're going to read over and over again the freedom that we have and the liberty that we have. It is a blessing. It is us being able to grow in knowing all that He is for us. But maturing in Christ is a privilege. Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods, just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.